Amen. Uh, thank you, uh, Stephen and musicians, and thank you for worshiping us with us. <laughs> Not worshiping. Thank you for worshiping with us uh, this morning. Um, we continue through the book of Matthew. We are now in chapter 8. <clears throat> and uh, this morning we're going to talk about the cost of following Jesus. The cost of following Jesus. But before we do, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, I just thank you now for this hallowed moment, for this hallowed time. We think about the brute fact, Lord Jesus, that you will reign forever. That your glory will one day cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's... Uh, it's a fact, Lord. It's, it's not just a hope against hope, Lord. It is the destiny, the consummated end to which all things are appointed. Lord, if we are in you, if we have turned from our sins, Lord Jesus, and trusted in you, we will be there to enjoy it. Your glory in its unveiled splendor. And so we come this morning, Lord Jesus, acknowledging our need of you. We come this morning, Lord Jesus, asking for grace to hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. We pray, Lord Jesus, that just as you spoke these words some 2,000 years ago, we would hear them from your lips this morning, that we would count the cost. Of following you that we would weigh you and the world in the scales and find you Lord infinitely more worthy and glorious and beautiful and valuable than anything this world has to offer make that I pray the true condition of our hearts and it's in Christ's name we pray amen if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, and we are going to talk about the cost of following Jesus this morning. Christianity, it's a profound thing. It's a glorious thing. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There is nothing we can do or could do to earn forgiveness, to earn salvation. So God has given it to us as a gift of grace. And yet, at the same time, it is a gift that of necessity changes us. It is a gift that once you receive it, you cannot receive it and remain unchanged. It makes us different. It makes us new. It transformed the way. It transforms the way that we look at the world. Jesus says the kingdom of, of heaven is like a treasure that a man found and he in a field and he hid it. And then it says, in his joy... He went and sold all that he had to buy that field so that he could have that treasure. The kingdom of God is something that you didn't know was there, but when you see it, you see that it is so valuable that you can gladly give up everything else this world has to offer 
just to have it. Jesus today encounters these two different men. And in different ways, he calls them both to count the cost of the kingdom and count it more worthy than anything else that they might have to give up to obtain it. And that's what we want to talk about this morning, the cost of following Jesus. And we're going to read about this in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you... And said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The word of God. So as we look at this passage, we want to kind of look at it under two headings this morning. Number one is we want to talk about the demands of the kingdom, the demands of the kingdom. And number two, we want to talk about the urgency of the kingdom, the urgency of the kingdom. First, we see the demands of the kingdom. We see this in verses 18 through 20. Now, if you remember from last time, our chapter 8 obviously comes after chapter 7. Chapter 7 is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, it, it closes, Matthew closes it with these words. It says in Matthew 7, verse 28, it says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And, and then we saw last week that the beginning of chapter 8 uh, had to do with three healing stories. Jesus healed a leper. Jesus, uh, we meet a Gentile centurion who believed that Jesus had the authority to heal his servant with a word, and he does. And then we also see how Jesus healed many people, including Peter's own mother-in-law, by just a word. And so and, and we, we see then that the clear, the clear emphasis of this passage of scripture is that um, is that uh, is is the focus on Jesus's authority. Jesus had authority in his teaching, and Jesus has authority in his power, his power to uh, heal the sick and to do miraculous works. And in fact, in our passage uh, after this, in the remainder of chapter eight, we see Jesus's authority over nature in calming the storm, and Jesus's authority over demons and casting out demons. And so this. This section is focused then on Jesus's authority, but tucked right here in the middle of the of these stories of the miraculous, we have these stories of the cost of following Jesus. And that is that when we see Jesus's authority, when we see that he teaches with authority, when he's when we see that he has authority to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to calm the sea, to cast out demons. When you encounter somebody with this kind of authority, it demands a response. When you encounter Jesus, you're, you're faced with a decision about what you're going to do with Jesus. You cannot meet someone who can heal the sick and raise the dead and calm the storm with a word. You can't meet such a person and remain unchanged or indifferent. You have to make a decision about the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. 
And in response to Jesus's authority in, in this in the in this section about the cost of following Jesus, we have two examples of two different kinds of responses to Jesus. And, and they are quite interesting and there's something to learn from each of them. In the first instance, we have a scribe. Scribes were authorities in the Old Testament law and they were respected religious leaders. And in the Gospels, it, the scribes are often put uh, as a, in, in opposition to Jesus. But apparently that was not a, a universal reality because here we have a scribe who apparently, as far as you know, and give him, give him the benefit of the doubt, he genuinely desired to follow Jesus. In fact, it was much more than that. It seems that he had a great zeal in his desire to follow Jesus. The scribe comes up to him and he says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Well, that's quite remarkable, isn't it? If Jesus was here walking around ministering today, would you walk up to him with a pure and sincere heart and say, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go? That's faith. That is the call of faith. It's no small thing in your heart to go to Jesus, which is what it means to be a Christian, by the way, to in your heart, by faith, go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Whatever you call me to do, wherever you call me to go, whenever you call me to do it, I'll do it. I'll follow you. That's profound. That's the call of faith. I pray that we would have the same zeal for Christ. But something in this story isn't quite right. Jesus sees the zeal of this scribe to follow him, and he implicitly accepts it as appropriate. Right? So, so note that. He doesn't rebuke the scribe for responding to him in this way. In other words, he assumes that's how you should respond to him. Who Jesus is demands this kind of response. I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. That's the kind of response that Jesus' authority demands from his followers. But Jesus can see into this man's heart. And in this case, he knows that something is not quite right. So Jesus tells this man, he says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That is, it seems that the scribe had zeal in his desire to follow Jesus, but he lacked one thing. And the thing that he lacked was this. He had not yet fully counted the cost of following. He had the zeal to follow Jesus, but he, did, he, had, he had yet to count the cost. There are many pitfalls when it comes to entering the kingdom of heaven. And one of the pitfalls is failing to count the cost of following Jesus. You see, it is easy sometimes to see, especially think about it in Jesus' day, it would be easy to see the power of God, to see God miracul miraculously at work through the hands of Jesus, through the hands of the apostles. It would be easy, wouldn't it? To be caught up in the moment. To be caught up in what is going on. To be caught up in, in the power and the authority and the, and, the, 
and the miracles and all of that and to see what is happening. It'd be easy to be caught up there and say, yeah, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. It would be easy to, to come into a worship service and to see people singing and praising the Lord and to feel a sense of and, and to hear God's word preached and to and to feel a sense of God's presence and God's power and to feel a sense of unity and community among the people and, and to and to see the the, the 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 kindness and the humility with which people treat and care for one another. Lord willing, those are all things that you experience when you enter into a church, a Bible-believing church, and you could see that and think, man, I could be part of this. I could see myself being part of this. And you could be caught up in the moment, but fail to count the cost. Christianity is great. Christianity is glorious. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It is eternal. There's nothing like it. It gives it, 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 it describes and gives us the true meaning and perspective with which to view reality and with which to view the world. Christianity is glorious. But one thing Christianity is not is easy. In fact, Jesus warned about the different kinds of responses that would happen to those uh, uh, to, who hear the word. He told about it in a parable. In a Matthew 13, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, uh, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. And as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So we see that hearing the word and even hearing the word and receiving it with joy doesn't mean you've really grasped it. It doesn't mean you're really part of the kingdom. One of the things that we have to do is to count the cost. Jesus told this scribe, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. The king of the universe came down in flesh, the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And when he lived on this earth, he was homeless. He died, and even in his death, they took away literally the only physical, earthly possession that he had, the shirt on his back. And if you're not, if you're not ready to accept such a life in following Jesus, then Jesus himself says you cannot be a disciple. He says this in Luke chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? 
whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it began to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so the question is, have you counted the cost of following Christ? Are you ready? Are you willing for the, cro the cross of Christ, the name of Christ, to cost you something? And you see, it's just so important because for 2,000 years of church history, in most places of the world, including most places today, being a Christian is costly. We're kind of insulated from that a little bit in modern-day America for now. But probably within my lifetime, that will not always be the case. And my fear is that many people will have embraced Christianity in a moment, in, in, at some point in their life, they thought they had embraced Christianity, but then when it cost them something, they'll realize that they were like the seed that fell on the rocky soil that had no root. And when the sun rises with its scorching heat, they wither up and fall away. Have you counted the cross of following Christ? You see, there was a day in America uh, where you could, where Christianity, by and large, was acceptable. There was a thing called cultural Christianity, and because going to church and calling yourself a Christian uh, was neutral, or in, in many cases, in fact, even advantageous, it was just part of being a good citizen uh, and things like that, uh, that, that many people called themselves Christian who were not truly born again. But I don't know if you've noticed, but things are not like it used to be. And in many ways, I say good riddance. Because, because soon and very soon, the only people who will claim the name of Christ are the people who really love him, who really believe him, who are really willing to suffer for him. It, it will increasingly become the case that following and believing in the unchallengeable authority of Jesus Christ and his word will be not an asset, but a liability. Have you counted the costs? What are, the, what are some of the potential costs of following Christ? Well, at the bare minimum, one of the costs of following Christ is going to be your comfort. The bare minimum cost of following Christ is that following Jesus is going to make you uncomfortable. It's going to make you go and talk to people that you might feel uncomfortable talking to. It's going to make you go and have conversations that you might feel uncomfortable having. It's going to go, yeah, make you go to places you might you, you may feel uncomfortable. It's, it's going to get you out of your bubble and get you uncomfortable so that you might know him and make you known in the world. Following Jesus is going to cost you your comfort. Following Jesus is going to cost you your pleasures. As Christians, we don't live for the present fleeting pleasures. We live for future eternal pleasures. But foolish joy then means glad self-denial now for the glory of God and for the good of others. It is acknowledging that in our fallen human state, 
things that we find really pleasurable now may in fact lead to darkness and despair and joylessness and pain and sorrow. And so we can gladly deny ourselves now for true and pure joy then. Following Jesus may cost you your family. There are many places all over the world today where if you choose to follow Christ, you will immediately be disowned by your family and possibly persecuted, possibly killed. There are parents uh, and siblings and children and relatives who will not agree with your faith in Christ and will even disdain your loyalty to Christ. And there are times when it will cost you relationships with those that you love the most. We pray that that's not the case, but sometimes that will happen. And it happens all over the world, and it's happening today. That's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Because following Christ is costly. And it will cost us things. And the essence of what it means to follow Christ is that when we weigh Christ in the scales with anything else, Christ, Christ is weighter and heavier, makes everything else feel as nothing in relationship to Him. A big cost today that I don't think we appropriately factor in in our faith to Jesus Christ is the cost of our earthly identities. One way to think about our identities is to think about it in terms of our felt loyalty to a certain group or community. The greater the sense of loyalty or devotion or identity I feel in a certain group or community, the more greatly I have embraced membership in that group as part of my identity, as part of who I am. So what do I mean by that? Well, all of us are part of different groups, right? This is a big thing in our culture today. For example... One thing that I am is I am a human being. So I share in common with all other human beings uh, humanity, right? We share humanity in common, right? I'm a human being. That's one thing that I am. But I'm also a father. I share something. I share some shared experiences with all people who can identify as a father. I'm a pastor. I, I live in a group of those who can be called pastors. I am a Hindley. Okay. Some, some parts, you know, last name, you know, you can identify somebody by their last name. I'm a Henley. I am a man as opposed to a woman. I am half white. I am not fully white. I am half white. I am half Thai. My mother's from Thailand. I'm half Thai. I am a Georgia Tech grad. Some of you like that. Some of you don't. I am a bunch of different things. And so are you. We all have different Groups that we could say in some sense, I'm a part of that group. All in the same degree, even though they are all true of me. Now, let me ask a question. When I say, you know, I say I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm half white, I'm half Thai, I'm an American, I'm a human. You know, when I, all those things mean I'm a tech grad, all those things mean something. But now let me ask a question. What about when I say I am Christ's. I am a Christian. The question of ultimate importance is what does that mean to me? 
where does my identity in Christ weigh in its relative importance in my life to my other identities? Am I Christ in the same way that I'm a tech fan? Are you Christ in the same way that some of you are Bulldog fans? Think about it. If I judge people's hearts, and I don't, but if I judge people's hearts by the words they say and the posts I see on Facebook and the decorations around my house, I wouldn't know if they're more loyal to Kirby Smart or to Jesus Christ. What about you? Am I Christ in the same way that I'm a tech fan or a Bulldog fan? Which is the priority? Which is weightier? Which is heavier? What is my ultimate identity? Which identity is my ultimate? They will. They always will. They will come into conflict. You know? And the question is, when they come into conflict, when my identity in Christ comes into conflict with another one of my identity, guess what? One of them has to give way. One of them has to bow the knee to the other one. And what Jesus is saying to these men in this passage is he's saying, if you're going to follow me, everything else has to bow to knee to me. Everything else has to bow to knee, the knee to King Jesus. There are times, for example, when my sense of loyalty to my race, race relations are very difficult today. There are times when my loyalty my, or my perceived sense of loyalty to my race might come in conflict with my loyalty to Christ. Members of a certain racial group will exert pressure for you to think and say and act in certain ways that are incommensurate with a with a follower, with a life that is following. You'll have to choose at that moment which identity will take preeminence, your identity in Christ or your identity in your race. My political party will at times ask me to accept things that Christ rejects, and I will have to choose. And if I choose my political party over Christ, I cannot be a disciple. Jesus relativizes our identity in anything else because Jesus will not take the knee to your other identities. They must take the knee to him. They must bow the knee to him. At the end of the day, when we identify as something, when we say, who are my people? Above and beyond and weightier than anything else, my people are Christ's people. My God is, is, is Jesus Christ, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. My kingdom is Christ's kingdom. So no matter the identity, no matter our race, our class, our nation, our nationality, our ethnicity, our cultural preferences, our language, our gender, our sexuality, everything is relativized by our identity in Christ. And every other identity must bow the knee to him. And when that happens, Jesus creates in himself a new people with a new identity. The one people of God who can be unified even amongst a great deal of diversity because the, the most important thing to all of them is their identity in Christ. Therefore, Jesus is able to unite those who are so diverse on so many other things. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul said, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ demands it all. His authority demands it all. He is worthy of it all. Whatever you have to lay down, he's worthy to throw it down, to have him. So number one, we see the demands of the kingdom. And number two, we see the urgency of the kingdom. Verse uh, eight, uh, Chapter 8, verse 21 and 22. He says, another of the disciples came to, uh, said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. We, we notice immediately here that this situation is rather different than the other one. This fellow wants to bury his father. He wants to give his father, he wants to attend his father's funeral or something like that. That is, of course, a very noble thing. That's why it's so shocking that Jesus would say something like this. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Leave the spiritually dead to bury their own physically dead. And when we think about this, uh, it rattles us a little bit. It seems insensitive. We can't quite understand why Jesus, why Jesus would respond to this man who has lost his father, why he would respond to it in this way. But before we think that Jesus is being insensitive here, we should at least consider another perspective. It may be that our shock at Jesus' statement speaks more to our oversensitivity to worldly matters and our inability to grasp how urgent the kingdom of God is, maybe it speaks more to that rather than to Jesus's insensitivity. And we must also remember that in, in narrative like this, when we're reading a story of, some, of something Jesus said to a specific individual, we must remember that in such cases, Jesus's statement Statements aren't always to be taken as universally binding. For example, uh, when Jesus, when the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and Jesus told him, you lack one thing, sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. We know, for instance, that uh, Jesus, that the early church did not interpret that to mean that every follower of Jesus was supposed to always at every time sell everything that they have. In their, in their following of him, but we know that there are people who use their homes for Jesus, use their businesses for the kingdom, use their, use their, uh, uh, use their resources to serve Jesus as opposed to selling it all. So we know that just because Jesus says it in a specific instance to a specific individual doesn't mean that it's universally binding in all cases and at all times. I think when Jesus is looking at this man, he can see this man's heart and he can see in this man's heart what that this father's funeral was kind of a convenience for him to do something that deep down he was to, an excuse for him not to do something that deep down he was kind of reluctant to do. 
And that is follow Jesus. Stop all that he was doing and give the ultimate preeminence and priority in his life to Jesus Christ. You know, it's, you know, I don't know. Surely I'm not the only one that does this. But sometimes there's something that you know you need to do and you don't want to do it. And then something comes up and you're almost relieved. Woo! Now I've got an excuse. Don't have to do it. I'm out of it. Well, I think maybe that's what this man's, this man's father's funeral was like that. He knew the urgency in what God was calling him to do to follow Jesus. But he's like, whoo, I don't have to follow Jesus right now. I've got a funeral to go to. You see, it's not just overt and, and manifest and obvious sin that is, our, that is our threat to the kingdom of God. But in fact, most of the time, it is what keeps most people out of the kingdom is not manifest evil, but good things that we choose to put ahead of God. Jesus talked about this in Luke 14. He told a parable. He said, um, he said uh, he was reclined at table and he was teaching and someone heard what he was saying and he said to him, uh, somebody said to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Blame it on his wife, y'all. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. They refused the king's invitation to his banquet. And why did they refuse the king's invitation? Because of sex, drugs, and rock and roll? No. Because of a field. Because of a yoke of oxen. We could say buying a tractor. Because of his marriage, his family. None of these things is bad in and of itself. But what did they do? They'd rather go and mess around with those things than come to the king's banquet. And because of that, Jesus said, none of these will come and taste the king's banquet. And so this is the question that all of us must ask ourselves. Is there anything in our lives 
that were choosing over the king's banquet. Is there anything in our lives that we're choosing over the king's banquet? Is there anything in your life that is hindering you from full, faith-filled, just selfless abandon and surrender and obedience to God? It's not, it's not just, it's not just, it's not just bad things. But is there anything even just distracting you that is absorbing your attention from a life of full and heartfelt obedience to God? The man who is too absorbed in inspecting his field and inspecting his oxen and too absorbed in his business to give time to God. Jesus said would not taste the king's banquet. There is an urgency to the kingdom. Let us hear Jesus' warning and abandon all to follow him. Note here in this passage that you have two individual men who have different hang-ups when it comes to Jesus. And Jesus speaks precisely to each individual in that specific way that he needs to be spoken to. The overzealous man needed to count the cost so that he fully understood what he was getting into. The reluctant man needed to know the urgency of the kingdom. But in both cases, the only option open to a true disciple of Christ is to prioritize him and his kingdom above all. And so that's the question that you need to hear. Maybe there's some here who are in fact zealous for Christ. And you have yet to count the cost. You need to count the cost. I'm guessing most of us here are like the second man. There are other things in our lives that we're like Lot's wife. We're fleeing from Sodom, but some of us want to look back. Some of us want to look back. It's keeping us from full abandon, surrender to Christ. And in both cases, hear me now, in both cases, Jesus isn't interested in half-hearted followers. You would think this zealous man who came up and said, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. If, one, if, if this man came into our church, we would, be, we would be thrilled. We would be pumped. We would be excited that this man came to our church. And yet Jesus said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I want you to know what you're getting into. And you say, Jesus, why don't you just accept? Why don't you just accept a zealous follower? And he says, No, it doesn't matter if you're zealously following me. If if two three years down the road you just walk away because you didn't count the cost. He's not interested in half-hearted followers. Jesus is not on his knees as some people portray him, begging us for a crumb of our attention. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The promise of the kingdom is incalculable forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, life everlasting, a seat with Christ on his throne to reign over the new creation with him forever. It's a crown. We're promised a crown. But to get the crown, 
you must carry the cross. That's the call of Jesus Christ. As I close, I just want to read this illustration to you. I think it's an important one that illustrates our point. In 1921, a young couple, along with their two-year-old son David, moved to the Congo, which is in the heart of Africa. They teamed up with another uh, with uh, another Scandinavian couple, Joel and Bertha Erickson. After months of boring into the remote part of the jungle, Joel reached his limit. He reached his limit and angrily vented to David. He said, this is ridiculous. What is ridiculous, David asked. Everything, Joel said, coming to this godforsaken continent, traipsing through the jungles, living like animals, nearly killing our wives, and you've got little David who'll probably die of malaria. Joel went on to ask, what do we have to show for our months of work? Malaria? Malnutrition? Two village chiefs furious with us? Well, there's a, there's a native boy, David answered quietly. Yes, the boy replied, our one convert. For all these months, we have one conversion to report. A child who probably doesn't even understand the things we say. I'm sorry, David, we have to go. Though, Eric's, though the Ericsons left, the flood stayed on alone. To complicate things further, Survey, uh, Survey came, uh, became pregnant and gave birth to a little uh, girl named Ina, a classical Swedish name. However, the birth pro process and the complications from malaria were too much for Svei. The Lord took her home when Ina was just 17 days old. David dug a crude grave for his beloved wife. As he stood over it, he thought, what a wasted life. Something in him snapped. And he was filled with anger and bitterness toward God. He felt that he had been sent on a fool's mission. He had had enough. David uh, took his two motherless children and headed to the missionary outpost where the Ericsons had gone. When they finally arrived at the outpost, the Ericsons urged David not to take Ina on the grueling journey to the nearest port. It was a nightmare of a trip, and little Ina would certainly not survive it. Determined to return to Sweden and start his life over again, David reluctantly agreed. So he left his infant daughter with the Ericsons as he and little David headed back to Sweden. Within eight months, both of the Ericsons died and suddenly um, died suddenly. So 19-month-old Ina was given to American missionaries Ar Arthur and Anna Berg. They changed her name slightly to Agnes, and her friends called her Aggie. Uh, when she was three, the family moved back to the States where Aggie married and had children of her own. She and her husband, Dewey, were given a vacation to Sweden for their 25th wedding anniversary. Aggie would finally have the chance to meet the father who had left her in Africa. When she met him, he was living in a little apartment building in a lower class section of Stockholm. Her father's room was squalid and had dust covered empty liquor bottles lining every windowsill. Diabetes and a stroke had confined the 73-year-old man to his apartment for three years. As Aggie looked in the far corner, uh, she saw his small wrinkled frame and sunken cheeks which needed a shave and his short unkempt head of white hair. Her half-brother touched their father and said, Papa, Ina's here. 
He turned toward her slowly. She took his hand and said, Papa? He began to weep, saying, I never meant to give you away. After crying with him for a while, she said, it's all right, Papa. And she took him in her arms and held him like a baby. God took care of me, she said. He stiffened suddenly and the tears stopped. God forgot all of us, he spat angrily. Our lives have been like this because of him. I was in Africa all that time and only one little boy and then your mother. As she wiped tobacco stains from his chin, she said, Papa, I've got a story to tell you, and it's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win that whole village to Christ. The little seeds you planted just kept growing and growing. Today, there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. A few years later, Aggie attended a high-level evangelism conference in London, England, where a report was given from the nation of Zaire, the former Belgian Congo. The superintendent of the national church, representing some 110,000 baptized believers, spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. Afterward, Aggie asked him if he had ever heard of David and Svei Flood. Yes, madam. The man replied, it was Svein Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. Aggie said, I'm their daughter. I was born on that mountaintop. Tears ran down the man's face and he said, thank you for letting your mother die so that we could live. After this, Aggie had the chance to travel to Zaire to visit her mother's grave and worship with the believers there. In the worship service that day, the pastor read the scripture. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Svei had given her life so that others might live. What is that? It's the call of Jesus Christ. It's the call to take up our cross and follow him. It's the call to come and die. Why? Just to suffer for suffering's sake? No. It's because the call of the cross is to come and die so that others can live. It's following Jesus. It's what Jesus did. It's what followers of Jesus will do deny ourselves and carry our cross because unless the seed dies it'll never know the fruit it could have borne in the world but first we have to die die to ourself die to our world die to everything in this life that is pulling and tugging us to to put Christ second we must die so that we can bear much fruit the invitation this morning is this. Come, follow Christ, die to yourself so that through you, so that through death you may live and others might live through you. Let's pray together.